Welcome to Voices from the Past, a podcast from Plymouth Plantation. Go behind the scenes and discover how museum historians, curators, artisans, and interpreters recreate the 17th century worlds of Plymouth and Wampanoag Patuxet in a 21st century landscape. Today we're speaking with Tim Roderick, curator of our Native Reproductions collection. Welcome to our podcast, Tim. Oh, thank you, Hillary. So some of our listeners may be surprised to hear that we have a Native collection here at Plymouth Plantation. Oh, sure. uh, what is your What is your role with the collection? My role, I take care of all of the reproduction artifacts, and the reproduction artifacts are uh, objects that are made by hand uh, in today's time periods here at the museum using modern machines like Dremels and Sanders. And, you know, some of the things that we do down on site, all is done the old way. So, you know, those old skills are very difficult for us to manage, you know, and some of us have them, and some of us do not. So, some of the ways to get things to look the old way is to do it only the one old way. Mm -hmm. um, you can sand things down and polish things and such, but, you know, when you're taking that stone knife and cutting through the bone, that's the authentic view of it. So... You know, uh, I've been uh, pressing myself to do better at uh, this every day. What are some of the objects that we have in our Native Reproduction Collection? Well, the, the newest things um, I just got done making in the Craft Center, which are uh, bear fur quivers. And so we have uh, inside rawhide case for the... And the rawhide is unprocessed, unsoftened skin. So it's just scraped clean of all the fat and flesh and then dried, and then it's very hard and stiff. Mm -hmm. uh, to soften the leather, you use the brain of the animal, and there's enzymes and proteins in there that soften it up. So the rawhide just is not that step included. So it's, it's stiff. You, you know, and I've made a tube casing, and then I just went and cut the bare fur to match the outer dimensions that I needed to wrap it and then I put a rawhide strap on it and uh, those I made three of those and those are all for our, our Bradford wedding you know which is tomorrow so for the Bradford wedding we know from Emmanuel Altham's letter that he writes home in September of 1623 mm -hmm. that the Wampanoag men the leadership who come into the town 120 men including Massasoit and his wife yep. and four other presumably local Wampanoag leaders, yeah. they do have to leave their bows and arrows in the governor's house. Yes. Altham writes this. We also know that that's part of their their arrangement from the, the peace treaty from 1621. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about, about that? Sure. Um, you know, those things, any member of Massasoit's community would have been totally aware and on point of these ongoings, I would believe. These diplomatic relationships. Yes, these yes. diplomatic relationships and the reasoning behind them. Mm -hmm. um, community members that are not from Poconocet, that's the community of Massasoit, mm -hmm. might not be fully aware and up to par with the regulations of interacting with the English. That they have to leave their right. their weapons outside the town, essentially. Right, outside the town. And then when, when, the, when this one account happens, they're brought into town and mm -hmm. stashed into the governor's home. Um, so, you know, it's hard to really pinpoint some of these feelings, mm -hmm. you know, um, in one regard, 
all the weapons together in case something would to happen. Everyone could go to that one spot and get prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, so that is common sense thinking. Um, on the other hand, it could be behind a locked door of an Englishman, which as a native person, you might not be so aware of how these doors are operating. Mm -hmm. You know, so you might not feel so secure placing it behind a door that you're not always operating and understanding how it, it's working. But for the most part, I believe that the contingent that was coming to the wedding was totally on par and, and, and fully aware of the reasonings. And, you know, once folks understand, then there's, there's, there's no hard feelings or bad feelings or, you know, feelings that might lead to mistrust or misunderstanding, you know. And were, were Massasoits and these other na native leaders, were their uh, entourages bringing weapons as displays of power uh, to protect their sachems on the road uh, or just as part of their, uh, their sort of accoutrements that they carry with them every day? Yeah. Um... Once again, it's difficult to understand. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of us have said, um, you know, like when we take a look at the Thanksgiving shoot, mm -hmm. a lot of us have said that maybe Massasoit brought that many men with him during the Thanksgiving time as a way to show the English that he was this powerful person, so not to double-cross him. That he could summon 90 men and come into their town, which right. in 16... 21 was 50 some odd people exactly yeah so that would have looked amazingly strong you know mm -hmm. uh if you're an english person who just got through seeing everyone dying that winter and everything you know so that's at that time mm -hmm. and then there's another thought about the that many men coming to th the thanksgiving when the english are harvesting they're shooting off their muskets mm -hmm. and that was a sign of warfare Mm -hmm. So maybe Massasoit thought that there was fighting going on. You know, mm -hmm. so these are some of the thoughts that, you know, people who have knowledge of the culture and have knowledge of the sources, the first sources, um, have thought. But there's no clear, defined answer for this stuff. You know, mm -hmm. when you're going hunting every morning as a Wampanoag man, yes, you go out with your bow and your arrow. Mm -hmm. When you're traveling with your leader... Yeah, you'd want him to be protected, but does that mean that every man would have it? Most likely. Mm -hmm. Maybe not, you know, because there were those of us who were in charge of protection, uh, the Penis. Mm -hmm. And, there, you know, we talk about them, and when we talk about them to our visitors, we compare to them to knights of medieval days, you know. And so, you know, they were in place, and they were the ones who were in charge of protection, military strategy, um, advising the chiefs on uh, what was going on in that sort of mindset, on that sort of front. So it's, it's, it's interesting to talk about, but, you know, I can't say this for sure, that for sure, you know. We, as modern Wampanoag people, we look at it and we discuss it, and... You know, we're really careful with, yes, this is exactly what it was. Because once you have someone saying that, then it leaves it not so wide open where, you know, uh, a scholar can, 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 can listen to me and say that we haven't defined exactly what was the thinking or what was, you know, coming out of those pages, those writings. And they could run with that, you know, where, gee whiz, I don't have the research time. You know, sure. uh, so, you know, as a historian, 
and as a native representative, you always want to have that view of it, you know, where this is my opinion, this is my view, this was what was taught to me, this is why people think these things, but really any of that real exact defined knowledge would have came through oral history. And, you know, the oral history just is not what it should be now, you know, because of all the many years that we've just been trying to be, you know, as uh, colonized good people, you know, getting along through the time periods hasn't been a ball of, uh, you know, wax, you know, rather yeah. it has been a bit of ball of a wax, you know, so. It's definitely, a, it's, a di it's a difficult position to be in, and yeah. that's also part of the difficulty of our sources, is that they are European sources. The only description of the first Thanksgiving and the Bradford wedding of 1623 are both European men commenting on behaviors, cultural expectations right. that they don't necessarily understand. Right. Uh, Emmanuel Altham, who writes about the Bradford wedding, hasn't been in town that long. He's not a regular member of this community. Um, if Edward Winslow had written about the Bradford wedding, maybe we would have had some different insights because right. by 1623 he's been in, he's been to Poconocet a number of times right. and he has more of a rapport with this community. So that is always a challenge that when we enter a source with a native perspective in mind, that we have to rem we have to remind ourselves this is this is a European perspective on a culture exactly. that they don't understand. Right. But getting back to to some of the objects that you've been making for the wedding, you mentioned yeah. the quivers. Yeah. And I'm curious about the bear the use of bear fur. Is there a symbolic uh, reason behind the choice of bear fur, or is it just for its luster, its beauty, its accessibility, its pliability? The uh, option three, I believe, the accessibility. Um, I had a bear fur, and it's an old bear fur. The mm -hmm. skin has begun to rot a bit. It was given to me by my chief, and um, it's my personal uh, fur, uh, but I was very ready to cut it up and make quivers and for this amazing opportunity here to, you know, be in the portraying the ancestors, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it doesn't matter to me that I've taken the bear fur that was mine and not Plumber Plantation's property. That right. doesn't phase me at all. You know, um, the choice of the bear fur was just because I had it on hand, you mm -hmm. know. And um, I've used a lot of the claws for necklaces off of the bear fur. I've made uh, three quivers out of the bear fur. I have a portion of the bear paw with the claws still on it as uh, underneath my headpiece. So, you know, a lot of the guys just have a nice flap of leather and then they tie their ribbon and feather work onto that leather. What I've decided to do was to take one of those sections of the bear paw and use that as the leather. So, I think it's a little fancy. A little fancy. Well, fancy. <laughs> that, sound, that sounds really cool. Um, and so, really, it sounds like what you're doing is exactly what your ancestors would have done, is you're, you're repurposing things that you already have. And Absolutely. things the English were doing as well, is repurposing yeah. what they had yeah, the, available the, to the, them. The, the fur use is kind of interesting. Um, when you first uh, skin an animal, you process the hide. We've talked a little about that. Mm -hmm. And then it essentially becomes a bed fur. Um, and when it's a bed fur, it's the fullest, it's nice. And then throughout its life, you know, you can break it down into all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, one of the uh, really interesting cases of this is the beaver fur. The beaver fur that was used on the beds was more valuable to the English. 
because they didn't need to pull the long hairs out to get to that finer, softer stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of interesting thing, the animal skin. Absolutely. Yeah. So looking at the Bradford wedding, you are going to be portraying a Wampanoag man as a guest at the wedding, so you'll be yeah. part of the processional. I'm but, even going to be a chief. Oh, very. Do you know anything about who you're going to play? We only It only says four kings. Yes, so what do, yes. what do we know about other leadership um, in southeastern Massachusetts? So, well, we know the other chiefs who had been signed on to the treaty with Plymouth mm -hmm. by this time. Um, we know that the leader of Metapoiset, Competent, had signed on to it. Mm -hmm. And there's some material about Competent because he hosts Winslow on the way down to visit uh, Massasoit as he's sick. Mm -hmm. So, um, in my mind, I'm going to play Competent, you know, and I'm not sure if it's going to be a said thing or an unsaid thing, you know, and I've made a few of the colonial interpreters aware that that's who I'm going to be in my mind space, you know. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we're going to have anyone else portrayed besides Massasoit and Habamok. Mm -hmm. Darius Coombs is going to be Massasoit and Philip Wynne is going to be Habamok. Beyond that, I think we're just going to go very generic, you know. But um, in order for me to, you know, get in my role-playing space, I'm going to be in my role-playing space as competent. And Competent, we know he has a relationship with Edward Winslow, so presumably mm -hmm. he speaks a little bit of English. Right. Um, but a lot of Wampanoag, sort of, I guess, ordinary Wampanoag people uh, were not English speakers. Yes. And I know that um, the Wampanoag language has recently begun its um, sort of rebirth oh, yeah. through the Wampanoag language restoration, a reclamation project. That's right. So will uh, our native staff be bringing any Wampanoag language to the wedding? Interesting. Um, it's hard to say. Conversationally amongst yourselves. It's, it's hard or... to say. Um, it might happen very organically. Mm -hmm. um, once we get into the village, um, I have, I have some things in mind for you know. We understand how the plot has been laid out, but you know the native interaction is very organic. Um, so. They have us doing this and they have us doing that at these set times, but there's room mm -hmm. for, you know, other quirky things to go on. And it would be very quirky, you know. Uh, what, a, for, what a strange situation these what, people find themselves in. You know, uh, a Wampanoag doesn't even really understand how to use a chair. You know, uh, point. Yeah. Th there was no such thing in our culture. Or sitting at a table. Sitting at a table. You know, like all the many Thanksgiving images have uh, portrayed through the uh, history of America. Um, these things were not really deal. You know, um, so I'm going to discuss certain things with, you know, some of the um, native staff and some of the native uh, uh, guests from outside mm -hmm. the community uh, of Plymouth are coming uh, for uh, this this opportunity here. Uh, I'm going to discuss with them too some of little little quirks that you know we might be able to play out. And there's a really interesting moment where Emmanuel Otham asks for the boy. I spoke about this with Darius. It's such a loaded moment right. in this in this letter, <laughs> these two paragraphs. I craved a boy of him. Right. And we have no idea who he's talking about. There's mm -hmm. some suspicion that this is Massasoit's eldest son, 
Wumsara, who he brings with him, presumably right. as sort of the the prince to come and see this right. to see this diplomatic um, exercise going on. Yes. But there is also this history of of Europeans taking native uh, men and boys as slaves, and Tisquantum, which exactly. Darius and I talked about has a long history with the English having been enslaved and sort of being a man of, of two countries and no country. So right. that is definitely going to be uh, a, an interesting moment for our visitors to look for yeah. when we're going to... We're going to have to come face-to-face with that moment at what and the weight that that carries still for these two communities yeah. today in 2015. Yeah, and the, but, the, the gentleman playing the boy mm-hmm. doesn't really want this to happen. No, of course not. You know, and so I've talked with him and, you know, he doesn't want to be put in that position, but he's old enough where he's not nine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our nine-year-olds, we are a little bit more protective about than that. So he's, you know, a Mm 16-year-old and he looks very young. Sure. You know, Um, so we think it'll do well. It'll it'll Mm -hmm. be well. But even him at 16, he doesn't want to be the one. <laughs> and, and, and this is, I think this is really going to pack a punch with our visitors because they're going to see a child essentially being inquired after by a European to say, I'd like right. to, to take your child, your prince, away from you and, yeah. and sell him and, and bring him back to my brother right. as a token of the new world. I think that's going to be a really so my challenge is what's, moment. The, what's the proper reaction to that moment? Sure. You know, I mean... How grossed out do I become, you know? And, you know, I have a sentiment, you know, but I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do. I don't have have a a moment drawn up in my mind, you know. I believe I'll get closer to the young guy, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I might, like, lean over his shoulder and glare at the English or something, Mm -hmm. you know. But that's all I have, like, in mind, Mm -hmm. you know, just be close to Devin and, you know, be kind of like looking over at the other team, you know? Sure. Being like, no, can't take him. <laughs> I want to keep talking about your work as a site interpreter because mm. you are a senior site interpreter on Wampan- on the Wampanoag home site. Yeah. You've been an interpreter and a museum teacher for, for many years for Plymouth Plantation. Yes, thank you. And traditionally when visitors come to Plymouth Plantation and they meet our na- modern native staff, you are not role-playing. Yes. You are speaking as modern native people. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your site experience? What are visitors the most curious about when they meet modern native people? It depends on where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, it really does. You know, uh, there is no way to judge before the organic conversation is started. Mm-hmm. So I don't. Um, you have to everyone, let them set the tone. You, you do. You, you have to let them bring whatever is going to be discussed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some folks are very up on the histories and some folks are not. Right. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. so it, you know, you you, you get uh, general questions about, you know, what did the Wampanoag feel when they saw the English? Uh, That's something that, you know, a lot of folks ask. And then there, there, there are other moments where, you know, um, folks are asking, you know, uh, you know, uh, why don't cultural. you, why don't you wear headdresses and live in teepees? Exact think things of this nature, you right. know, like, uh, and, 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 you know, when I first started working here in 1993, um, it was far more 
uh, apparent that folks were watching cowboy Indian movies. Yeah. You know, and now the kids are not. So, you know, so much of the cultural insensitivities that I used to deal with as a younger man, I don't deal with it anymore because it's just not in the kids to, like, call it out that way. Mm -hmm. You know, um, sure, we still get the kids going, woo, 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 you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and once in a while. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, the view has become a, a little better, you know. So some of the hardships that I used to have in the 90s are not what is going on now. Um, so when, when, when folks come to us, I, I don't presume that anything is going to be anything. Um, I, I really just try to tackle it one individual at a time because, you know, every human's different. You know, everyone has their own personal experiences, and when they come here, they're coming here as themselves. They're on vacation. They're relaxing. They're what they know, you know, mm -hmm. uh, what their experiences, and so, you know, it's very powerful when... I'm able to, like, get into it in a way that, you know, they have thought this for years about the Native culture because they read it in a story. And, you know, it's very easy for me to just, no, that's not exactly, you know. And, you know, people, you know, they look at us in this magic way. And it's just not exactly the right way, you know. That magic way all just comes from how in tune we were, mm -hmm. you know, with Mother Earth and nature and all of that. Mm -hmm. So it appears that, you know, we're magic, you know, where every human is magic, you know. Um, we're all special. We're all different, you know. And so when, when the guests come up, you know, I, I, I really, you know, just absorb what they want, what, what they're about. And sometimes the, the, the guests are shell-shocked. They don't know what to ask. Well, you may be the first modern Native person they've ever seen, let alone gotten the chance to speak to. And you right. do dress in traditional attire right. when you're down on site. So there's that visual shock for yes. many people as well as, um, as, well as the, the shock of, of, meeting, of meeting real Native, real right. native people. And, and to just clarify, the attire issue um, is a thing. Um, we're not exactly clothed. We wear legit breech cloths for everyone who's listening. So that's what that's about. <laughs> mm -hmm. And coming around, sort of the the um, the wardrobe is all made by the women on uh, down on site, and yeah. um, some of the clothes are painted. Some of the clothes have beads on them. Some of the clothes have different uh, decorative elements. And yeah. as we're sitting here talking, you are working on a number of different objects. Uh, yes. Can you describe for our visitors what kind of objects you're working on and how they're going to be used yeah. on the home site? Absolutely. Um, right now, I'm repurposing a bowl and making it into a toggle cup. So I've drilled my hole in my wooden toggle cup. Now it's a toggle cup. Before it was a bowl. And it has a nice effigy of a beaver on it, and I am not the maker of this bowl, but to me it looks like a beaver because of the nose. The ears look like it could be bear, but the nose here, if it was a bear, I believe the nose would be a little bit more elongated and boxy, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think this artist was going for a beaver effigy. Um, so that's what we have on one side of the bowl, and the other side is just plain, and uh, it has been burnt, burnt out. 
Um, that's the proper woodworking way to uh, hollow out a ladle portion of anything with fire. And um, the outside of the bowls would be carved with either stone knives or beaver teeth, you know? Uh, so generally you want the outside shaped and then you burn it out. And you always need the wood to be completely clear of liquid. So it has to be cured properly or else if you try to tr burn it, it'll just crack because the moisture will be trying to evacuate the wood. So um, I've drilled it and I'm tying my toggle on it. And my toggle is a very interesting piece. Um, I've never worked with one of these before because I've never had one before. But I'm sure it was a thing. I have a dried turtle head as my toggle. And this turtle head, um, along with the bear fur, had been given to me by Elder. The bear fur was given to me by Winsong. Um, the turtle head was given to me by my elder, Sly Fox. And uh, he gave me a few things when he was giving me his crafting materials. Sly Fox is older, and he's getting a touch of dementia. So, you know, we want to take care of him in the best way we can. I've taken his drum, his powwow drum, and I'm taking care of that. Um, he gave me a, a case, and, and uh, the case was full of uh, crafting material. There was five dried turtle heads in there, uh, along with other things, deer hooves and bear claws and porcupine quills and, you know, all really cool things that I can use. You know, what is the most difficult material that you work with? You know, for me, it's wood. Yep, wood is very delicate. Wood is very easy to overcarve. Um, when I'm carving, you know, it's easy to get into something, but it's hard to take just enough. Mm -hmm. You know, to have that sensitive hand, and wood's softer. You know. A soapstone, a antler, a bone is all very dense material. Mm -hmm. So when I'm carving into antler, you have to be very certain. You know, take that drumble and, you know, with you gotta wood. Commit. Yeah, you got to commit. You know, with wood. So wood is a little bit more of my challenge to, to work out of all the material. Shell is really interesting. Um, antler I'm pretty good with. Uh, bone is very easy. Um, bone and antler, if you soak it, it'll absorb the moisture a little bit, and then it becomes softer to work with. So, um, just to wrap up, I want to come back to the 1623 Bradford wedding. So, okay. in addition to your uh, role as uh, combatant that we're going to see you as uh, on Saturday, yeah. you will also be sitting with, uh, for a time, with our curator of English reproductions, Molly Cardoza, and right. the two of you have put together a special exhibit on sort of objects of marriage and objects of diplomacy. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what they can expect from that exhibit? Absolutely. Um, so we've just finished our very first replica wampum belt. And we know that Mesozoic was wearing such an object on his way to and during the wedding. So um, my material culture exhibit will have that. Uh, the, the wampum belt uh, will be mm -hmm. present. And that was just finished, what, three days ago? Yeah, I think Two, so. You know, something like this. And uh, Bob Chalabois was amazing with that. I can't possibly imagine to make a belt that fast. So... Um, I give all the props to Bob, you know, what an amazing job he did, and it's nice. It's uh, over six foot long, and um, 
it's it's going to be very cool. And uh, the other things that we're going to have, this toggle cup with the beaver uh, will be a part of the display. Um, we figure as men travel, they travel with toggle cups. There's no account of the toggle cup, but that's one of those calls that we've made uh, with our cultural knowledge when men travel they have toggle cups so the toggle cup will be present and one of the other things uh, that is mentioned in the accounts of Otham is the bows in the arrows and we've talked a little bit about how they get stashed in the governor's home mm -hmm. um, so um, I'm gonna have one of the new bear fur quivers with some of Philip Wynn's arrows and uh, than one of the replica bows that we have that has been made by the the Christians, uh, which we commissioned those bows to be made back in the 2000 Thanksgiving shoot when we were dressing 90 men mm -hmm. uh, for that sh amazing shoot with National Geographic. And uh, so we still have many bows from that time. And uh, what else? Oh, the bear, the, the, not the bear, the wolf, the wolf, the black wolf. That uh, Massasoit will wear yeah. when he comes in as part of the processional. Right. So that will be present. And I'm still not certain if Darius wants to carry the black wolf or not. Probably going to depend on how warm it is tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure what he wants to do, but if he wants me to bring it out of there, I will, absolutely. And what would you like visitors to take away about Wampanoag culture, uh, material culture in particular, from your exhibit and from the, the recreation, the objects they're going to see as part of the wedding? What's the, the one thing you'd like folks to take away? Well, um, I know that what I enjoy the most of having the knowledge of the material culture is that this is all doable. There is not a single item that's impractical or not necessary, or not attainable. And these are, were all things that a man or a woman were able to have. Um, they were able to have them because they made them. And the materials that they were using to make all these things, they were just in the backyard. So that for me is the most amazing portion of what we do with the collection Mm -hmm. is that to to understand that there was not a single thing bought. You know, there was not a single thing that you'd go and grab from your neighbor. You know, this was all just within your family, and you as a couple, a husband and a wife, you just teamed up and made everything that you needed, and you just knew that day that you had to go and gather the material, and you processed it, and you kept it until you were ready. And so that right there is the most special thing that I enjoy about when when we're putting these shots together you know um, I'm the curator so you know it's 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 kind of you know we've said often this year that we're standing on the backs of giants mm -hmm. you know and so now that I'm in this seat I'm not sitting here just me I'm sitting here and I'm doing the work that people far greater than me had have done mm -hmm. so you know it's not just up to me it's up to me and it's up to me to satisfy the people who are not here you know I understand because I remember when my teachers were here they would say no that's not so you know when I'm feeling lazy and I want to take a break and a cut you know I think oh geez man they would really want that image to be precise mm -hmm. so you know I it, it motivates me you know to to say all right well it's up to me now.
you know, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, do what I need to do. To make you know? sure that the imagery and the, the scenes that our visitors are going right. to interact with and experience are as historically accurate as our source material and our collective knowledge will allow. Yes. Well, thank you, Tim, so much for chatting with us. For more information on the Bradford Wedding, make sure to visit us online at www.plymouth.org. And hopefully we'll see all of you tomorrow at 2 o'clock for the reenactment of the Bradford Wedding. Thanks for listening.